We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning, continuing in our study in the book of Philippians. And what we really want to look at is this, that when eternity is your aim, the temporary will lose its influence over you. We, we have been called to be believers who focus on the eternal. Everything around us is temporary. We're always a phone call away from destruction. Always a phone call away from hopelessness. When eternity is the thing that we aim for, it's the thing that we move towards, the temporary loses the influence that is on us. If I asked you this question, to live is to, and you fill in that blank. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, Jesus. If that's true, that's true. But answer the question. To live is to blink. For some of you, living might be sitting on a beach in your chair, watching the tide go in and out. Some of it might be sitting in a boat, watching that sunrise ready for the first shot of the season for duck hunting or sitting in that deer stand. For some, it might just mean waking up on the back deck of the mountain cabin, sipping your favorite coffee, and we would say, this is the life. But let me tell you, to live is to whatever you put in that blink, whatever is in that blink is your functioning savior. That is the thing that you put your life into. I want to talk about that phrase a little bit this morning, to live is to, and we're going to fill in that blank, because we're talking about a guy named Paul, who, he wrote this book and letter to the people in Philippi, the church that he had started. He's 10 years, this church has been established. We know the first three people that gave their lives to Jesus and helped start the church with Lydia and the slave girl and the Gentile. And this church is established, and Paul's writing this letter, but he's writing it from the jail cell. You remember that? He has been imprisoned, and Paul writes these words. He says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How in the world could you write something like that from a jail cell? Is that the words that you're pinning in a jail cell? Because for me, I'm writing my attorney. I'm trying to do whatever I can to get out of here. And Paul says, no, 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 no. What I'm going to do is I want to encourage the body. And what I want them to understand is to live is Christ. Coming from a man in prison. Can I tell you, in prison, Paul was a man that had more freedom than anybody else around him. Outside the walls, outside the shackles, Paul had a freedom about him. To be able to make this, this declaration that to live is to, is to be with Christ and to, to, God, to die is gain. The only thing the enemy has for you and I is to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life more abundant. And so Paul has a choice in this prison cell. I can allow the enemy to take control. I can allow the enemy to have victory today. I can allow him to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God is working in my life. Or I can tap into this abundant life that God has given me. And even in a prison cell, he writes the words, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul writes this in verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me 
has actually advanced the gospel. Paul says, hey, what had happened was, I got arrested. You remember why Paul was arrested? Because he killed somebody, right? No, that wasn't it. He stole something? No, that wasn't it. Uh, He bared false witness? No, that wasn't it. Paul's in prison because he would not stop proclaiming Jesus as Savior, as the Messiah. And so he's arrested, and they send him to Rome. And he tells them, what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Now we need to ask the question, what actually has happened to Paul? Well, he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was hit so many times at one point. They thought he was dead. They drug his body outside the city just to rot. And then he just got up and walked away. That must have had like a a severe concussion. But all these things happened to him. And he's preaching the gospel. And he's locked up not because he disobeyed God. He's locked up because he obeyed God. Following the very thing that God has asked him to do. He trusted that whatever situation I'm in, God will be there in the midst of the situation. He was faithful. Did you know that the opposite of faith is not doubt? There's a lot of people say, well, if you don't have faith, then you doubt. The opposite of faith is not doubt. Let me just tell you something. There are many that have doubts. And you're allowing your doubts to keep you from coming to Christ. Because you think that God's going to not like you or he's going to have something against you because you have doubts. What do you do with all those doubts? Can I tell you what you do with all those doubts? You gather all those doubts together and you just walk with them. Because there's going to be a day where those doubts are no longer doubts anymore. Because you're going to see your king face to face one day. And any doubt that you have is going to go away. And you're going to know that the things that you picked up and walked with were the very things that God was calling to rescue you from. We don't have to be stuck in our doubts. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. It's fear of stepping into the unknown. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, not the things that are seen. God's doing a work here. He's doing a work in our lives. He's doing a work in our community. And we have to have faith to step out and trust that God is in those moments. And Paul's saying, listen, what has happened to me is good. I'm not sitting here doubting. I'm not sitting here in fear. Why can Paul write this? Because faith is the opposite. It's not fear. Paul's not writing out of fear. He's writing out of faith, believing. Because he has a blessed hope. Faith always produces action. Always. To have faith, to to step up and say, I want to give my life to Christ. You're putting your life and surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. That takes faith. It takes a lot of faith. It also takes a lot of faith for you guys to sit in some of these chairs. How do you know I didn't remove some of the bolts out of them? Or better yet, how do you know I did not put those things together? And by the way, can I sidestep real quick? And he do, he's going to be mad at me for doing this, but he'll repent later. Last Sunday, I was trying to figure out how to have a better baptismal pool. And we were talking. And Paris Tyler and his son Wyatt made that happen in seven days. Right? 
So I want to say thank you. And he made sure the water temperature was just right. Just right. And we even mixed in some holy water from Israel. So we know it's just right. So let me ask you this question. What if, no matter what happened to you, no matter what hits you in life, no matter what comes up against you, what if your response wouldn't be, why me? But what if it was, God, how are you going to use this? Because that's an eternal perspective, isn't it? How many times have we been in situations where we said, God, why me? When we read this book and we read all of Paul's, all of his life, it was never a why me moment. It was always the same thing. The closer he got to Jesus, the more refined the question got. God, what are you going to do in this situation? What are you going to do here? How, how are you going to shine? What are you going to do through me? Not what are you going to do to elevate me? Paul wasn't trying to become elevated. Paul was decreasing as Jesus increased in his life. If you could go through life and instead of saying, why me? And switch that to God, how are you going to use that? Wouldn't you agree with me? The freedom that is within that statement. What would your life look like if that was the, the stance, that was the perspective that you would take of saying, hey, I, I don't know why me. It doesn't matter why me. What it matters is that God is in this situation right here, right now with me. And how is he going to use it? Whatever, whatever he wants to do, he can do. What if you looked over your shoulders and some of the sufferings that you've been through and you begin to see Romans 8, 28 at work where he says that the God is at work in all things for those who love him and are called to him according to his purposes, that he works all things out. He hasn't forgotten about your circumstance. He hasn't forgotten about where you are. He is right there in the midst. Sometimes what he is doing, waiting for you to acknowledge his presence in your situations. Because it's having faith that he's there, that he can do what he says he can do, and that he is who he says that he is. He goes on in verse 13. He says, so that it has become known. These things were good that happened to me. I'm fine in prison. I'm fine with everything that happened. These things are good. But so he says, so that it has become known throughout this whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because of Jesus. They know why I'm here. They know why I'm in shackles and why I'm in this prison cell. It's because I've been proclaiming Jesus. Paul's sharing the gospel with the elite of Rome. Did, did you know that the imperial guard, Caesar, personally handpicks them and has them trained? They're kind of like a secret service. And, and these are the people that Paul has been around. His greatest desire was to go to Rome. In Romans chapter 1, you'll see that, that he wants to go to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel. Paul had every intention of going to Rome as a preacher. But God had different plans, and Paul goes to Rome not as a preacher, but as a prisoner. Now, we would go, man, that's not good. But I want you to look at what he's saying here. Yeah, I had what I wanted, and what God wanted didn't seem as nice. Like, if I told you I'm giving you a free trip to Rome today, but you don't get to go as a tourist, you have to go as a prisoner. How many people are taking me up on that offer? All right, one. Holler at me later. We're going to talk. You need some counseling. <laughs> we wouldn't take that. We wouldn't want to do that. But Paul says, it's perfectly fine. His mission did not change. While 
The way that he would get there changed. And the way that he thought he would get there changed. The mission never changed. It was always the same thing. I will preach Jesus until I can no longer breathe. Until my life is done, I'm going to preach Jesus. I'm going to stay on the mission of Jesus. Because Paul believed that when Jesus died on the cross, it meant something for him. He has been changed. Remember, he was just a guy who was all about law and punishment. And if you can't follow the rules and you're going to pay the price for it, he was killing Christians. Until Jesus got a hold of him. And his life has never, ever been the same. He did not change the mission. Had he done it his way, Paul would never be around the most influential people of Rome to get the gospel. Do you know like 300 years after this, Rome converts over to Christianity? I have to believe that it started from a prison cell, from one of the most joyful and free men in all of Rome. Paul had a plan, but God had a plan. The men that have locked him up those men took away his freedoms. Paul can't do anything. But Paul's sharing the gospel with him. He's praying for them. And let me say this. Don't pray about your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Don't pray about them. Pray for them. Praying about your enemies is about you. Praying for your enemies is about them. And Paul prayed for them. Even though they had taken away everything that he had, he prays for them. In verse 14, he says this, most of, most of the brothers, they've gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Because of Paul's example, Paul's saying, because of what I have gone through and the way I've trusted God through this and the way I've been faithful through this, what has happened is, instead of people getting scared and saying, whoa, if that's what happens when I follow Jesus, I don't want to go to jail. What he's saying is that the people have been encouraged because of his imprisonment, and now there is this boldness, there is this confidence that they want to speak the word of Jesus, but not just speak it, they want to speak it without fear. They want to speak it without fear. They want people. You want to see revival take off in your workplace, in your school, in your, in your life groups? Sometimes it's just somebody going first and sharing the gospel. Saying a prayer for somebody. Sending a piece of encouragement. Sending some scripture somebody's way. Changes perspective for people. Never ever question your influence. Paul could have easily questioned his influence. But what he did was trusted God to keep being obedient to the very thing that God called him to do, no matter what the circumstance of that situation was. Are y'all hearing me this morning? In verse 15, he says, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. There's some people that preach the gospel, and it ain't even the gospel. And there's some people that are preaching the gospel. He says, those who preach out of love knowing that I am, a, uh, that I am appointed to the defense of the gospel. They know this. And, and that others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. Some people are preaching so much, Paul says, that they're preaching. And their objective in preaching is to get me in more trouble, to get me a longer life sentence, to get me killed. That's their ambition in life. How would you respond to that if you knew that people were doing that towards you? That's what Paul's asking. If you knew people were preaching and had the wrong motives, how would you react to that? Listen, there are a lot of churches 
that preach a lot of things that are not Jesus. They're packaged that way, but when you open the box, it is not that way because it does not align with the Scripture. As a body, I used to think it was my job to point those people out and point those things out, how they're not doing this and they're not doing that and they're not against Scripture and this is wrong. Listen, the Bible didn't tell us that we're supposed to go towards other churches and start calling them out. What it does say that we're supposed to protect the heresy that happens in this house. That's what we watch for. Well, what about those pastors? They get away with it. Let me ask you this question. Is God sovereign and God on his throne? God used the donkey? God can use anybody. There's some hope for some of you today. I'm speaking to myself. So Paul says this in 18. What, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives of true Christ is proclaimed, they might be doing something, but the Holy Spirit is stronger than the message. He says the only thing that really matters is Christ is being proclaimed. Hey, church, if we don't get anything right, as long as Christ is being proclaimed, that's all that matters. That's the metric of success for a church. Is God clearly being proclaimed? And Paul says this, in this, uh, what is that word, everybody? I rejoice in this. Just thinking about what you're doing. I just rejoice in that. I rejoice. And he says, yes, and I will continue to do what? To rejoice. Can you imagine this kind of freedom being in prison? And you're using words like rejoicing? Spending your time writing your letter to people you met 10 years ago. You hadn't seen them in a while, but you have truly deep relationships with them. And this is, this is what you're doing. You're saying, I just want to rejoice. He doesn't focus on where they differ. He focuses on the fact that the people are hearing from Christ and they're responding because Paul is not living for the applause of people. Paul is living for the applause of Jesus. Because he's, I hope Paul is like I am, that when I get to heaven, if Jesus would just say, good try, I'll take that as a win. Just good try. You, you, you tried. We, you got here, you're good. But there's freedom in what he's writing, but there's also joy. Joy is a choice. Happiness comes and goes. You remember when you were a kid, there were things on your Christmas list that you really, really wanted. You'd get up and Santa put them underneath the tree, and they were there, and, and they were the happiest things that you had ever gotten. Where was that toy within the next Christmas? What happened to the happiness? But they're things that bring you joy. As a church, watching people cross over from death to life, watching the scriptures come alive of what Jesus said, if you'll do this, this will happen, and then watching them be baptized, that's joy. Can't take that away, because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not into making you happy. He is into giving you joy. And that is a choice that you and I have to make every single day. Joy is a noun and rejoice is the verb. They have the same root word. And this means that joy is found in Jesus. And if you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you, then joy is in you. You have it. When you rejoice, you're putting action to the noun that is within you. But you have to willfully decide to stir that thing up so that it will come out. And if you're going through chaos and you're going through suffering and you're going through heartache and you're going through some pain and you say, I don't have anything to rejoice in. If you have Jesus, you have everything to rejoice in because you have his presence. That's the promise. 
is that we have his presence. If you're not feeling the joy, then you need to rejoice. If you are in Christ, then there is plenty for us to be joyful about. Joy is not a lifestyle. It's not just a feeling. It is rooted in Jesus. Joy is rooted in Jesus, not your circumstances. I think we can all testify to that. That it is rooted in Jesus. Paul has found his joy. He goes on to say in verse 19, because I know this will lead to my salvation. Talking about his imprisonment. I know it's going to lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus. My eager expectation and my hope. You ready for this? Because what would your eager expectation be in prison? Right? Not what Paul's about to say. And if it is about what Paul's about to say, then we need to trade places. He says, my eager expectation is hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything. But that now, as always, with all courage, that Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, I know either way I'm going to be delivered. I'm good. The Romans said, hey, we're going to kill you. Paul said, great. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. You kill me, I get to go see Jesus. They were like, oh, well, we don't want to do that. We're just going to keep you alive and punish you. That's fantastic, because I still got work to do here on earth. If you don't kill me, then to live is Christ. Either way, it's a blessing. What about if your circumstances and your optimism was that way? That to live is Jesus. To be here is a blessing, and to be in the presence of God is a blessing. That is eternal focus. He says, you, you want to kill me? That's no problem, because to die is to gain, and to keep me alive is Christ being proclaimed. In verse 22, he says, now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. Like, if you don't kill me, I'm not going to shut up about this. I'm going to keep moving forward. He says, so if, if I live in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and if I don't know which one I should choose, then I'm torn between the two. Because I don't know if I want to live or die, because they're both great options. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Paul says, listen, I told Jesus the moment that he blinded me and I met him on that Damascus road, I told him in that moment, my life is a blank check. Do whatever you want. Spend it however you want. I am in for you. This is what it looks like when you live a life that has surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. You don't worry about the circumstances. You just walk in faith. God provides it. He says, if you leave me here, God, there is fruitful work for me. There is fruitful work for us today that God has called us to. Verse 27, just one thing, he says. That's the pastor's way of saying, I'm, I'm going to close it, but there's about 45 more minutes is what Paul's saying. Just one thing. Because remember, he says, I'm writing, in, in verse 1, I'm writing to the church in, where? Philippi. So he's addressed them as the church in Philippi. But watch what he says here. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, we are in Monk's Corner, but we are of heaven. And sometimes we are of Monk's Corner and not in Jesus. I want you to pay attention to how he worded this. 
He says, citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or if I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit and one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Because listen, because people were killing them for what they were believing. We don't know what persecution is. Persecution for us is when they misspell our name on the Starbucks cup and they call out the wrong thing. But people are dying for their faith. Even right now in this moment, there are people across the world that are dying for their faith. He says, we're standing firm in one spirit and one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. Paul says, never, ever forget where your identity lies. Your identity doesn't lie in what you're doing as a body. Your identity lies first and foremost in who Jesus is and what he's done with his body. That's what he's saying. He says, this is, this is from God. You are in Jesus, and you are a citizen of heaven, first and foremost, before anything else. And he says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him. This is the part of the scripture, like if you could scratch stuff out, I would choose this part. But he says this, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, you ready? But also to do what? Also to suffer. Also to suffer for him. Sometimes we pray for things. Paul wants to go to Rome as a pastor. But the suffering was to go to Rome as a prisoner and keep the mission the same. He says, since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now that I have. What I'm saying is you're, when you follow Jesus, you are signing up to suffer. And when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he means to die to yourself. It's not about you anymore. It's about Jesus and what Jesus can do in and through you. This is the call to be a Christian is a call to suffer. And the suffering that comes to the Christian is not God's neglect, not God forgetting about you, but it is proof of the grace of God in your life. The call to follow Jesus is to sacrifice your life. And if you want to find freedom, you become a servant of Jesus. If you want to find joy, then you lay your whole life down and surrender to the Lord. Because anything else is us trying to create things that cannot bring us joy. It's only found in Jesus. If your life is characterized by faith and freedom and, and gospel focus, that it transcends your circumstances. It changes your perspective. Or maybe there's times that you feel like you're a victim of your circumstances. When eternity is the aim, the temporary will lose the influence over you. I promise you that. But we'll never know when we hold the grips and hold tightly to the things that we were never called to hold and bear the burdens we were never called to bear. There's a, there's a lady... Her name was Elizabeth Elliot, and um, she exemplified this kind of life. And, and there's, a, there's a book out you can read about her and her life. Actually, she wrote many books. But the, the book was Through the Gates of Splendor. And maybe you've seen the movie. Uh, for years ago, there was a movie called The End of the Spears about these missionaries that went to Ecuador. And Elizabeth Elliot lived this life as a missionary. It was, it's a free life. Like, it was, 
God, my life is a blank check. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You just tell me, and, and, and I'm in. She was married to a guy named Jim Elliott, who was also a missionary in Ecuador. And on January 8th of 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries, they had been tracking this unreached people group. And they would fly over every day just in hopes of seeing to make some kind of contact so they could share the gospel with the Wadoni people. They got so creative that they had figured out if they just tie like a basket to the bottom of the airplane and spin the plane in circles that the basket would just sit still and they would drop supplies to start the conversation. Jim and the missionaries trying to make multiple contact when they come into contact with Odonia and they, they make the decision that they're going to land their plane on the shore of the riverbank and they're going to start ministry to this unreached people group. They land their plane, they get out, they set up, and they come in contact. And the Wadoni warriors didn't understand. And Jim and these four other missionaries were killed there on the riverbanks of Ecuador. They were killed by the very people they were trying to reach. The very people that God had called them to reach. Now at that point, you just call it quits. And like this, we, we need to pack it up and go home. He was survived by his wife, Elizabeth, and their 10-month-old daughter, Valerie. Two years later, in October of 1958, Elizabeth and their three-year-old daughter, Valerie, went back to Ecuador to live among the very people that killed her husband and the father. Crazy, isn't it? And as she's packing up her daughter and all their things to head to those shores where her husband was killed, she writes this letter. She says, I'm writing this hoping that by the time you receive it, I will be living with the very people responsible for killing my husband and Rachel's brother and three other men. One of the tribeswomen say that there are six of the seven men who did the killing are waiting on us when we arrive. Perhaps you'll pray for them. All of the evidence points to a successful entrance for us. And even if we are received and our entrance is successful in the physical sense, what about the reception of Christ? I'm much helped by the thought of this verse, Matthew 1040, that whoso receiveth you will receiveth me. May it be so with the Wadani. I ask you to pray for them and us as we go that the name of the Lord may be exalted. I would like to repeat what I have said to several when they knew of my intention to enter the tribe, that I would never go because I thought it would be safe. Those that thought I would never go because I thought it was safe or for any other reason such as to carry on my husband's work, there is one reason and one reason alone. I believe it is simply the next step and it is the thing that is required at this moment. For the Lord God will help me and therefore shall I not be confounded and therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed in that confidence. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot. By 1965, much of that tribe had come to know Christ. Even people in this room, God called to go to the same place and to work among the same tribe years later.
right brain. A few years later, a 10-year-old boy named Steve Saint comes to Ecuador. His father was murdered by the tribe. One of the men that killed his father becomes a Christian. And not only did he become a Christian, he became a pastor of the church, of the people group, and he baptizes the son of the missionary that he murdered. Later, Steve Saint moves his entire family down to the jungle to serve this people. And that man murdered his father, has now adopted him as his tribal son. The reason that Elizabeth Elliot went back is because to live is Christ and to die is gain. The call to follow Jesus is to die to yourself, to take up your cross and follow him because he is worth it. Not because he's going to make your life better. Hey, everybody, he's not going to make your life better. He is better. He is life. And he's calling us to die to ourselves because there's so much more that he wants for us. So much more than the temporary things that surround us. And here's my heart this morning. I beg, I beg for you to say yes to Jesus. Beg for you to say yes to Jesus. I want to give you an invitation this morning to respond. Because the gospel demands a response. It is good news. It is a good news to those who receive. And here's the good news. Is that a father looked down on his creation who was broken and marred and sinful. And he sends his son, steps out of eternity. The ancient of days grows as a baby. And Jesus at 33 years old will go to a cross and will die for our sin. And when that drop of blood hit the ground, it was finished. The work of Jesus was done. This morning, we have a chance to respond to the Father who sends his only begotten Son, that whoever believes will not be separated, will not perish, but will have everlasting life, abundant, joyful life. If you've never put your faith in Jesus in this morning, I don't, I don't want to hinder anything. I don't want anything to be emotional. But the Holy Spirit is working in some of your lives right now. I know He is. We've prayed for you all single week for this moment that you would hear from Him and respond. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, and I'm going to ask you boldly to take your first steps in the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus. If you've never given your life to Christ, I want you to, if everybody would just bow your head and close your eyes. And today you're thinking, that's me. Man, I, there's no joy. I've gone from thing to thing to thing to thing, from relationship to relationship to relationship, to debt to bad debt to bad debt, trying to fill 
my soul. But God has reached down, and I know today that his Holy Spirit is working in my life, and he wants to do something. And I want to surrender my life to him. I want you to rescue me, Jesus. And if that's you, I just want you to pray this with me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. I know you died for my sins. I know it counted for me. And my life is a blank check. I give it to you. Thank you for saving me. If that's you this morning, if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to give you an invitation to take your next step in baptism. And you've said, I've come here and I, I didn't prepare for baptism. We have. But here's what I want you to understand. We don't want to hinder what God's doing in the moment. But if you want to be baptized today because you have received Jesus, we want to talk to you before you get into this pool. And we want to baptize you. And we want to put you into a life group and disciple you. If you get in this pool, you're making a commitment to surrender to the king and to be discipled. And we're going to follow up with you because we want you to experience that joy. And I know what you're thinking. I don't have anything. We got everything you need to be baptized and you can change right back into your dry clothes. We don't want to hinder a moment. For people that are, if you're a follower of Jesus and you would say this morning, hey, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you're willing to do anything the king tells you to do, I just want you to stand right where you are this morning. Stand and respond. If you're saying, Hey, this morning, I'm going to do whatever the king tells me to do. I surrender. I am all in. I surrender to his lordship. What Jesus wants in my life, I'm going to do. My life's a blank check. To live is Christ. To die is gain. If that's you, you can stand up this morning. We're going to sing. And as we do, but those who have signed up and you are going to be baptized this morning, I want you to go ahead and start making your way over. But for those who you're ready. Papa Rob standing over here is one of our elders. Rick is one of our elders. He's going to make his way over. They want to talk to you and help guide you if this is your next step of baptism this morning. So Father, I thank you right now in this room. There are many here today, God, that I know because we've prayed and your spirit has revealed it. There are people in this room right now and we rejoice. And again, we rejoice that people have crossed from death to life this morning and I pray for those who have had their doubts they walked in this room with their doubts they walked in this room without a relationship that they would take their next step to one of our elders and they would pray and they would take their next step towards baptism Jesus this is your moment may we not mess this up may we just trust in you and do the work that you've called us to do to baptize and to teach people to obey what you have called them to so they can experience life and life more abundant. I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen. If you need to respond, head over to this yellow curtain. We have guys that want to pray for you, and they want to talk with you, and they want to help guide you. Let's sing like we serve a risen Savior this morning.